0: My conversation today is with Stuart Cleland, an author and researcher who teaches philosophy and religious studies in the northeast of Scotland. Stuart has translated what are for me three massively important works, elucidating fascinating nuances of the French occult movement, The Green Book of the Cons, The Master's Voice, The Letters and Rituals of Martina de Pasquale, and Rhymes and Reason, The Lost Poetry of Eliphas Levy. Stewart is someone I consider a singularly important link in the burgeoning chain of serious, occult, and esoteric erudition. And his work has personally helped me in both expanding and more deeply understanding the underlying philosophies and personalities at the foundation of Western occultism, Freemasonry, and Christian magic. It was both a thrill and an honor to sit down with such an accessible and rigorous scholar to speak on a few of the traditions and personalities that have become a part of my magical DNA. And are nearest and dearest to my heart. I hope you learn as much as I did from this enlightening conversation. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. So you, you've obviously done some work translating the Green Book of uh, of the Yellow Cohen, which is excellent. I've got the I've got it on my shelf right there. Um it's a subject I've kind of been very delicate with in the things that i've spoken spoken about on this channel i haven't really spoken a lot about it and it's not because i don't appreciate the the elu cohen or or know anything about it on the contrary it's one of my like i was saying it was one of my areas of special interest regarding western occultism but it's something that's so complex and 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 frankly (laughs) strange um can you can you tell us like a little bit about what you uh learned or discovered or anything that you found very interesting about the Elo Cohen uh, during that trajectory
1: of being immersed in that work? Certainly. I mean, for me, the most interesting thing that I discovered during my research was the Elo Cohen was in a constant state of revival. It was constantly be evolving. Even Pasquale's last letter uh, to Oz declaring his uh, successor in the order has a rewritten catechism for some of the early craft degrees within the Cohen. So right up until his death, there is revisions happening. In our most recent project, we've been translating the letters of Pasquale, and it is a constant source of irritation and constant source of amusement to some of the members. How much Pasquale revises, rewrites, changes, improves. I think Pasquale is someone who was a, a talent for ritual, but he had members who were looking for a solid foundation. Uh, the were coin is a, a system of uh, occultism, theogy, that really does take over somebody's life. And if you don't have a firm uh, foundation, if you don't have firm ideas on timings, on dates, on ceremonial words, uh, I can imagine that's frustrating. I can imagine that that is really uh, something that becomes a bone of contention. And we see that in the letters. Uh, I think it's notable that the as a as a workable magical system starts to fade away. It's the theosophy. It's the ideas. Every member that we know of uh, eventually abandons the practice of the Elo and it's a theory. Uh, the ideas that come into uh, Louis Claude de Saint Martin or Willimoz into the rectified Scottish right—it's the theory, the ideas of philosophy that has that kind of afterlife. And for me, I think that's a lot to do with the constant revisions and the fact that, as far as I'm concerned, the system has never been completed.
0: Yeah, that's—I mean—that's very interesting, especially, particularly what I understand about Pasquale, which which makes him such so interesting to me is that uh he was kind of um uh an oddball and and a, a a uh what's the word i'm looking for i guess like uh a wild card type of thing um he and and i could be mistaken in, in my information but i i believe he was like nearly Ill, like illiterate he wasn't like a very very good he wasn't very good at uh at 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 writing and i I think what I had heard, at least what I had read, was that the treatise on the reintegration of beings was actually sort of collated posthumously by uh, um, Willermoz and uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, and they kind of put it into a workable format. But I guess, you know, if all that is is accurate information, then it's astounding to me how many of how many brilliant minds of his time he was able to sort of get on board with this thing and, and, you know, and, uh, and, and have these people stick with him through these uh, revisions. And I mean, it's intense work, right? You're basically living as a, as a, as a lay monk.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a lot in there, a, regarding his literacy, you know, Pasquale, Has quite a a shadowy background, a shadowy biography. We are starting to piece parts of it together, but the kind of general consensus is Pasquale was not a French speaker. He was not a native French speaker. It could be Spanish. It could be Portuguese. It was his native language, but he is someone who struggles with his French, hence the need for so many secretaries to draft and redraft his words. Uh, through the process of translation of his letters, uh, we found that he's writing in phonetic French. He's not using standardised French, he's spelling the words out. So uh, we had to get help with translating it because, you know, both myself and Joe Wages, we we do our best. But if someone's spelling in their kind of idiosyncratic, phonetic way, you really need to know the pronunciation of the words in the 18th century as well, because obviously language develops. So, yeah, he, he's he, his actual ability to communicate had to be mediated by secretaries and other people to help him uh, get that across. I think as well that, uh, you know, Pasquale is a a bit of a magpie. He's bringing ideas from all over. He's bringing ideas from Kabbalah. He's bringing ideas from alchemy. He's bringing ideas from the, the grimoire tradition. So uh, he is putting together which is really a a unique system, a unique system in Western esotericism. It may draw from lots of different places, but really he is presenting something new to an audience. I think to understand his appeal, we have to put uh, him in context. France at this time is reeling from the Seven Years' War, which they have lost. The French uh, aristocracy, which make up most, if not all of Pasquale's uh, initiates, are in a state of national embarrassment and shame. Uh, the military classes that were made up by the aristocracy had failed the country, and they are looking to try and redeem their honour. Pasquale is there offering men uh, the chance to redeem themselves who failed on the the, uh, the field of battle to enter into the field of battle in the lodge within Evil and good spirits to fight for the rehabilitation of not just their country and their class, but the entire world. The reintegration uh, back into uh, the empire of God, or perhaps even the French Empire.
0: Yeah, it's um, another thing that I, I I found astounding. I got into uh, well, I began studying um, early Christian Gnosticism. Uh, kind of just before I got into uh, the Cohen and their work and, and Pasquale and what he was doing. I had been, you know, I'd known about Martinism, obviously, you know, via the way of the heart, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, and then realizing like, okay, so his teacher was Martina de Pasquale and, and he came out of this order and this lineage and this sort of belief system. And as you, as you pointed out, you know, he was like, we can dispense with, the very intense theurgy and, and work on the, with the theory. Now, you know, at least in the work that is left to a lot of modern Martinist orders, there is some practical application, but it's much more meditative. There's more prayer. It's not, it's not ritual unless you're kind of getting together, right. To like do something and do an initiation. Uh, But what really struck me was the fact when I began reading uh, a treatise on the reintegration of beings and learning about his idea of reintegration is that it mirrored eerily uh, some forms of Gnosticism, early Christian Gnosticism, you know, it's even, even, even Sethian Gnosticism. And I, I it's something that I just don't have uh, the ability to access to begin to parse through these materials to figure this out. But I mean, in your estimation, is there any way he would have or could have had access to, uh, you know, Gnostic scriptures of that source at his time? Did, you know, was he sort of floating around in that cultural milieu where there were private collections and, and things like that? And I know we all we can do is speculate, but I guess my point is just to to point out how he had really he'd really penetrated he had accessed that current of thought to to a startling degree at least in the you know his treatise
1: well yeah i would agree as far as we can agree on the meaning of the word gnostic you know that <laughs> opens up a whole kind uh, of worms itself but well first of all uh, the eloquence uh, system the Elo- tradition evolves and is given birth to in the south of France, in the Languedoc region. This is former Cathar lands. This is the exact place that the Cathar uh, tradition is uh, extinguished so many hundred years before. So you have here a, a context, a, a, a historical geographical context that is haunted by the ghosts of Gnostics, you know, round about them. Uh, these uh, military men, these uh, aristocratic uh, Freemasons would have been well aware of the Gnostic uh, heritage of the south of France, the Occitane region that they're coming from. As regards to- Uh, Pasquale has access to these kind of Gnostic ideas well I think he's a very well read man I think you know uh, there's a hypocritical story that he comes from Spanish Inquisition and he had access to all the kind of confiscated and banned books that uh, were taken by the Inquisition and kept an excellent library that he would have had access to I don't know how true that is, but he would have certainly had access to uh, the 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 early church fathers uh, writing about uh, these kind of elements. I think for me, me. Not as Gnostic, but Gnostic. I the Testament and the New Testament as best he can. And he finds some kind of a bridge between the two within a whole array of materials, the Gnostic, Kabbalistic, and the Solomonic magic. And again, I think throughout Pasquale's system, you see this kind of, integration of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for many people, uh, Pasquale is someone who can be described as perhaps uh, of Jewish heritage, perhaps a kind of a Monaro, a crypto Jew, perhaps. But again, these are all speculations. For me, I think there is a lot of what we would call Gnostic thought within Pasquale's system. Uh, and I think it's remarkable that he's come working that system out of the South of France, the Languedoc, that kind of traditional homeland of uh, European Gnosticism.
0: Uh, you know, I thank you for pointing that out because I hadn't even put the two together, you know? Yeah, obviously Catharism, right? So that's, that's pretty incredible. Actually, that kind of, that blows some doors open for me now. Um, so now I've got this whole other trajectory to, 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 go and research, but, um, so you're, 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 I would say that you're a fairly, um, prominent Mason. I actually came to, to know your work through Masonic circles. Uh, obviously you, you do the lecture, the lecture circuit. Um, and you, you've got a few, uh, books, like you were saying, you know, the letters of, of Martina de Pasquale and, and recently you've, uh, and you've done some work on, um, the poems of, of Eliphas Levy.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: I guess, again, you know, it's the Arcanum podcast, right? We talk a lot about ceremonial magic. A lot of the people that I have on are ceremonialists and things like that. I do have some, you know, academics like yourself and, and masons and 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 things like that. But I, I like to talk about opinions. You know, it's not, it's not always uh, very, very strictly cut and dry. Um, what does what does the text say? So uh, on that note, I was wondering, you know, uh, being a Mason and, and being immersed in all these traditions, what are your thoughts on there kind of being this idea of a Masonry behind Masonry, sort of a, right, a need to... Th- a constant need for rectification. Do you find that that's, you know, are these interpretational differences, predilections and things like that, or, you know, to me, Masonry kind of this edifice, it lends itself to that kind of projection uh, of, 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 of each of the individual uh, you know, brethren, depending on how esoteric they want to, they want to go or, or, but, but what, you know, what are some of your thoughts that you're willing to share if any?
1: Well for me Freemasonry is a clearing house it's really a clearing house for those that are interested in the western esoteric tradition i think that uh, for a large part of the uh, occultism uh, there is a need for a, a meeting place, there's a need for structure, there's a need for progression and masonry does definitely provide that a uh, system, which then can be adapted and, and changed for whatever the personal needs are. I think for me, you know, Freemasonry is definitely a repository. You know, it really is a repository for uh, a whole host of rejected knowledge. When we get to about the 18th century and you have the, the, uh, the scientific uh, mindset becoming prominent, when you have that turn toward atheism, uh, atheist uh, uh, and positive thinking, I think that uh, Freemasonry is a place where a lot of the kind of last vestiges of medieval and Renaissance thinking can find a home. And for me, you know, masonry is that kind of go-to institution that can transform and change to meet the needs of different ages. And in every age there's a need for a return to the the the, the mysteries. But what that what those mysteries are are, are different for each age, and uh, masonry speaks to that. What the masonry was in the 18th century and what a masonry is in the 20 uh, 23 is is completely different and yet entirely similar. It's a meeting of minds. People come to to discuss what they consider to be the ancient mysteries. Uh, I think you know as we go forward, masonry is going through a bit of a renaissance with technology. I think. When we look back at things like uh, the Rosicrucian manifestos and the Rosicrucian Ferrari, and how there was a kind of virtual uh, world of letters going back and forward discussing the existence of different ideas and the the fraternity, uh, the the different uh, aspects of uh, their magic and their mysticism... We're starting to do that again with online materials, with uh, coming together from across the world to discuss on Zoom uh, and uh, the disparate groups of Masons getting together to talk about ideas. So for me, Freemasonry, like Pasquale believed, was something that was passed down through the ages, but by different names. A repository that evolves and changes and adapts to the needs of the time, uh, and uh, it's malleable, and it's something that continues to be uh, absorbing different ideas from everywhere. I think that's part of its uh, purpose: is to evolve and change uh, and update its working tools as we go forward.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I, I mean, I would agree with that in, entirely. It's, I you know, I've gone down some rabbit holes myself in terms of projecting what what I think I'm seeing. Uh, a lot of it being, you know, platonic and sort of, you know, my my generation of of of, I guess, esotericists is coming out of, um, you know, the that kind of university boom. So, and we 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 all are very very. We have this very Cartesian. Uh, you know um nominalist sort of training right almost from birth because you just put through that system um, and yet at the same time we the suits ill fitting it's a little tight so we're we're trying to to branch out and i find that a lot uh where that is most palatable or uh, palatable for for a lot of uh, people in, and I guess my social and cultural mil- milieu over here in the States, at least, is is in Platonism and Neoplatonism, right? Because it's that it's that bridge of, you know, rationalism. It's not yet Aristotelian, right? That, you know, chopping everything into tiny, tiny pieces and putting them in their appropriate box. But it is the beginning of that kind of, you know, rational, um, uh, a very, very systematized investigation of, of nature, uh, or, but the nature of being. Yet, at the same time, it still leaves a little bit of that room, that breathing room, that mysticism, that mystery that is, you know, um it's there. But the mystery is present in life. and and so we have to acknowledge it. and and Freemasonry definitely does that. But you know,'ve I've projected a lot of a lot of things,, uh, I guess maybe that I thought I wanted to see. But I guess now that you're talking about it, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of all there. It's not it's not necessarily that it wasn't there. It's just that everything is kind of, you you know, there because it's a lot of is is, is in symbols, right? And symbols are up for interpretation.
1: Definitely. I mean, my interest in Freemasonry has always been from the perspective of religious studies. I've always been interested in studying Freemasonry as a, a spiritual tradition. And for me, the the interest in the history of Freemasonry isn't to find out a history of a forgotten age. You know, it's to find out the the history of the particular period of time that uh, I'm looking at. I mean, I feel Freemasonry tells me so much more about the 18th century when I'm looking at 18th century Freemasonry than it does about biblical times. When I'm looking at Freemasonry in the 19th century, it tells me so much more about the 19th century than it does about King Solomon's time. And I think you know that's it's that's it's that clearinghouse it's that sounding board for the the hopes the fears the anxieties of the freemasons themselves is what's interested I think you know uh, during the nineteenth century, there was an anxious kind of a rebuke of esotericism and occult ideas with Freemasonry. I think they' kind of uh, there there were certain lodges and institutions that wanted to to come with a much more academic approach to the history of Freemasonry. But they kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. I think this idea that you should reduce it down to, you know, names and dates uh, and manuscripts completely misses a point of, well, what did the Freemasons themselves believe? You know, those Freemasons in, 18, in, in 1780 were 100% convinced that they were... Practices and something that went back to Solomon. You know, they really believed that. And it's important to uh, engage with that and go, you know, that was a spiritual belief. The reality of that isn't important. You know, if I study Christianity, I don't spend my time arguing with Christians about the historical reality of Jesus. That, that's missing the point. And I think when you study Freemasonry, to spend all your time talking about the historical reality of whether this went back to 1717 or 1717 BC, uh, it is missing the point. There's there, There's... It serves a spiritual purpose, and uh, I'm interested in what that spiritual purpose was for the men who were involved at that time. So when we speak about Pasquale and Elocones, Ella Cohn's, for example, you know, uh, personally, I am not here to talk about the efficacy of the magical ritual. What I'm interested in is in the men at the time believed it. Why did they believe it? What does that tell us about their hopes, fears, anxieties? What does it tell us about what was happening in culture or society at the time? And uh, I find that fascinating. I find that so much more interesting than uh, trying to piece together, you know, where the first mention of this word was in some manuscript, you know, and specifically dating the. They call it the idol of origin. You know, right. I'm Scottish and uh, I spend my time studying Freemasonry. And the amount of time Scotland is mentioned and the idea of Scotland. Uh, It it is enormous, you know, and it's like, well, I live here and I'm from here. And it's like, it doesn't matter whether it did actually come from Scotland or whether this branch of Freemasonry is called Scottish or anything like that. The men at the time believed that. And that's a very powerful thing. And, you know, for me, I'm fascinated in that idea about, the, you know, when we speak about the East, there's so much more than a geographical location. And when they, you study Freemasonry, when they speak of Scotland, it's so much more than a, a geographical location. There's a, there's an idea, there's an orientation there. And it's the same when we're talking about uh, Freemasonry reinventing itself. Where is it orientating itself? What are the things that those Masons at that time are interested in? That's the richness. That's the storehouse for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, we see even now, well, at least again, you know, stateside, there is, there's a big traditionalist movement actually happening now, which is is pretty interesting. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of TO lodges, actually. Uh, and, and, you know, they have, there's um, sort of a, a Masonic revival symposium that gets done over here. And it's, you know, it is, it's, it's a wide, I think it's a wide cross section of, of the brethren, but it's, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, now that you put it that way, I'm interested to see what you know what the our time capsule is going to uh, look like uh to to
1: to future brethren and whose trad- Who, who's tradition? Who's tradition you know it's like they, they, that, this this is our tra- this is a traditional approach well whose tradition and right. <laughs> you know, why is that considered traditional today because you know I guarantee you when you look into it it was done differently in the 1780s or the 1790s. It was like, why is why is that considered traditional? Who's pur- who, who's been served by that, and what does that mean today? Is far more important to me than actually proving. No, oh, yeah, that was traditional. That is what they actually did. I think that the uh, value in studying Freemasonry has a lot more to do with those types of questions that the tools of religious studies give us rather than the dry historical approach that uh, has perhaps been emblematic in Masonic research for the past, well, certainly until the 1960s, 70s.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm gonna, i going to, I I think, I think it might be a, like a Terence McKenna quote. I'm probably going to butcher it. But I always think of this when, when, um, you know, largely, right, at least for my generation, you know, this whole kind of traditionalist approach is very romantic. It's very, it is very romantic because our, our lives are deprived uh, of a lot of that stuff. Everything's very, everything's extremely graphic. Everything is very, you know, reductionist, you know, uh, reductionist materialism and things like that. And, uh, you know, modernism has has taken, um, well, you know, I think a lot of us feel like it has amputated some part of the of humanity from us right we don't we don't necessarily constantly it's we have to engage in a concerted effort to engage with things consistently that human beings before us engage with on a daily basis in other words cultivating the land you know like being you know think things like that we don't i don't have to grow a garden you know but i do it because it 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 makes me feel more a little bit more connected to my humanity and I, I um, anytime, you know, uh, they talk about TO uh, uh, lodges with the, the, the uh, black tie and things like that. And the all by candlelight and the pr- pr- processing in, which I love, don't get me wrong. I love it. But I think of this Terence McKenna quote, and I think it goes something like when a society loses its mind, it like reaches back to talk, to make contact with the last sane moment it knew or something like that. So it's, you know, it's, we, it's, it's pretty interesting because I'm interested to see again in the future, how brethren are going to look back on what we were doing and, and where it's going to differ and where it's going to have parallels with, with a century before us, you know, but I get, you know, to your point, it's, that's the brilliance of, uh, of, of Freemasonry.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I tend to uh, have a reaction to the kind of traditionalist, perennialist perception. You know, I really struggle with with, with these ideas uh, that somehow, you know, Freemasonry is this kind of a uh, fixed point in history. You know, my my, my research into Freemasonry has shown, uh, in my opinion, and uh, an never evolving. Process something that changes, and the idea that uh, it, it somehow uh, is f- fixed and stolen, like some kind of cathedral uh, that you can return to at a time of you know uh, confusion or diffusion. Uh, I, I, I struggle with that. I, although, uh, I personally view masonry as a progressive thing, something that's trying to move forward, and this idea of like kind of retrograde. Going back to basics, eh, I can understand for that it means something spiritually for a great deal of people. But for me, you know, I think that eh, it, it, I, I'm, I i have a reaction to it because I have not believe that eh, the actual Freemasons of the 18th century felt that way. They may have been talking about perennial truths, but they were interested in perennial truths within the context of their age. I mean, when we look back at the kind of golden age of the 18th century, you know, the rituals themselves are filled with political references. Bonnie Prince Charlie, the revolution, you know, the, this is a politics of their age. Now, can you imagine a lodge today that was changing the ritual to include references to Donald Trump or, you know, something (laughs) like that. But that's what was happening at that time. Like, when you read Masonic Ritual, it makes reference to contemporary political events, what's happening. Frederick the Great, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the Jacobite Uprising, British politics, Irish politics, French politics. It's all there. They're bringing a perennial truth to their context. And I think if you're looking backwards... Well, how are you engaging with the world that you live in today? We're constantly anxious as Freemasons about making it relevant to the modern world. Uh, so is a look backwards going to help us become more relevant? Some people, yeah. Some people are looking for that, you know, imagined housing days of yore. But I think, you know, the history of Freemasonry has shown to me that uh, the... Uh, projection or progression of Freemasonry has always been wedded to the age, always Mm. been interested in contemporary events. Uh, And I think that's the beauty of it. And I think with your question, how are Freemasons in a 100 years going to uh, look back on what we're doing today? Well, if they look back and see a generation who were constructing a fantasy past rather than engaging with the problems of the age it might not be a positive
0: that's an excellent point that's an excellent point and and i mean any tradition that is living has to evolve you know it's a, it has to be a living tradition rather than a museum of ideas so um yeah that's a great point that's a great point um but uh i wanted to talk a little bit about elifas levi uh, he's another guy who is just Incredibly interesting to me and to everyone else, I think, in the occult movement. Um, he's he's kind of a, a fairly enigmatic man to, to my to my understanding. He had training as a journalist um at, at a certain point. So he had this really, I want to say, cryptic enough to get you interested, but also slightly sensational way of talking about the occult. Obviously, in that that time um around. The uh, the French occult revival. Um, so, uh, what what are your thoughts on him, and or some of your thoughts on him and his work? I know you you translated some of his poetry.
1: Yeah, I mean an enigmatic figure uh, living at a real a time a great change, you know, real social change, cultural change. And uh, for me, translating these poetry was really for the first time me looking in any great depth at Eliphas Levy. And I still struggle uh, with Eliphas Levy and conceptualizing them and placing them in the kind of my, my kind of uh, philosophical uh, landscape. We recently discovered uh, a manuscript in the or uh, that was owned by Papus, Of course, that kind of great, uh, Uh, originator of Martinism in many ways. It was him that pulled together what we would call the Martinist tradition. And he had a a manuscript of Eliphas Levy's poetry. Uh, And I was keen to to read this poetry uh, and to try and put it out there. It is bad poetry. (laughs) It's not good poetry. And uh, please, if you do... uh, Uh, Purchase my my book of uh, Levy's translations. It's not my translations. Honest, it's Levy's bad poetry. Uh, Please believe me. (laughs) But it isn't good poetry. It's pretty bad poetry. But his ideas are there uh, and uh, the ideas that he he was grappling with. Elephants Levy is living at a time of uh, great change. Uh, There have been multiple uh, revolutions in France at this time. Great social upheaval. And uh, Pasquale speaks, uh, sorry, Levy speaks to that. What you have with Eliphas Levy is somebody who uh, is interested in trying to bring together disparate ideas, trying to bring together and congeal different points of view. I think for a lot of people, they would be surprised to know that Eliphas Levy in his youth was a socialist and he was very interested in socialism uh, and change and for him, occultism was a way of bringing about change in society, and much in the same way as socialism, and the two could come together uh, in a way to try and bring a kind of utopian future. There would have been many uh, uh, thinkers in France uh, at his time who were working towards building utopian ideas for France, and the uh, uh, Levy is bringing those ideas uh, into that contemporary setting. Again, he's living at a time where uh, there is a movement towards romanticism. Uh, He's trying to bring together ideas to do with mesmerism and medieval ideas, Catholic ideas, science. And he's trying to fuse them together into a way of working that will help change the world into a more just uh, and community-based society. And again, for me, that intersection between socialism and occultism at the mid century France is really, really interesting. Uh, I am not a practitioner in any magical. Order. So the efficacy of his ideas have never really been at the forefront of my mind. Uh, I'm interested in how philosophically he represents a kind of bridge between two different ages. This idea of fusing together uh, the science and magic, uh, science and occultism to build this uh, future, uh, this kind of utopian idea of where we could go and what was possible.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, it, you know as you were as you were explaining your understanding of what he was trying to do it, it it sounded a lot a lot like pasquale also right pulling from here pulling from there the ultimate aim being this transformation of uh of everything what i there's a couple of things about, about levy i've spent a lot of time in his work right because i i'm a golden dawn practitioner the hermetic order of the golden dawn and they were looking to his works, you know um they they flattered themselves, I think the early founders of the Golden Dawn that uh their their cipher manuscripts from which they hold their curriculum and ritual was signed by Eliphas Levy, you know apparently he you know he his eyes took a look at this type of thing. so I I spent a lot of time and and if you read like the the doctrine and ritual, you can see just how much uh they were pulling from from levy i mean a a a lot a lot i would say you know um there isn't much in the doctrine and ritual that wasn't somehow incorporated into the golden dawn spent a lot of time uh reading that and i don't know if it's if it's again the the poetic side or 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 something like that or if it's just that that era and that place that time and place but the right the writing is so florid and kind of like vague <laughs> you know that it's uh it, it can be so it can leave so much to left unsaid that you have to um uh really think about but uh by the time he had written history of magic I think that was published four years after Doctrine or or the ritual it, it kind of sounded like he had switched gears it it kind of sounded like and I don't know if there's any evidence for this in his personal writings or if anything else that he he kind of you know, you, you may be available from an academic perusal, but it sounded like he was more like, no, you don't do any of this magic stuff. Just kind of go to church. I mean, like that was, that was the the vibe I was getting reading history of magic. And again, you know, we saw something similar in, um in uh Cornelius Agrippa, right. When he writes on the vanity of the sciences and publishes that in tandem with, uh, the three books on occult philosophy. You've got one book, you know, expounding this stuff at great length, going to great pains. And then another one kind of decrying all of the different groups that actually participated in this stuff. And I think one of the one of the people or one of the groups that, that Levy was very vocal in decrying in at least in uh the history of magic what was actually the sort of Gnostic interpretation Of Christianity, so there's, you know, again, it, 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 he's very interesting to me, and I'm, I'm not certain if, if you, if you saw that same struggle in his personal, you know, his poetry and stuff like that.
1: Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, Levy trained as a Catholic priest, uh, and and and, he, he always has that struggle between institution and individual. Uh, as the whole of France was having at that time as well, there's this idea about tradition of the individual, about institution and rebellion. Uh, and the uh, Levy really is living at that time where people are moving between different governments, monarchies, republics, empires. Uh, you know, do the Catholic Church uh, represent for... Uh, Levy, you know, the true church, and he struggles with that, and you see that in his poetry. A number of his poems talk about the God being put on trial, the Catholic church, by Jesus being put on trial by the priests, and whether they are the true church. And I think, you know, when we speak about Levy and we talk about the idea of Catholic, I think it's important to pick up in the nuance of that, as in Catholic the universal church, not necessarily the Church of Rome. And uh, I think, you know, all magic comes back to the Eucharist. All magic comes back to the Mass. And the true Mass, uh, you know, if that is formed, uh in the way of compassion and the way of what it is intended for, uh, that ties in. Perfectly dovetails with magic. Without the mass, how can you have magic? You know, if you don't believe in the right. reality of that. But, but again, he's at that time where uh, institutions have been corrupted. Where uh, he is a socialist, he is uh, get liberal ideas, and yet he's got very traditional ideas. So there is a kind of split. There is a type of uh, split personality, a, a cleave. Down the middle of society, through him, through his thinking, uh, uh, there is a a transition and a kind of magpie approach to pulling things together to try and build unity, to try and bring back a country that is through a rebellion and revolution split. People are literally killing one another. There's communes. There's this idea of trying to bring together all knowledge, which goes back right to uh, the early the encyclopedias. You know, Diderot trying to bring that French tradition of trying to systematise, bring unity, bring people together. And I see Levy uh, very much is, is a part of that tradition uh, of trying to be a unifier, trying to understand deeper truths or bring people together and a true a uh, utopian sense
0: yeah and and i think also uh you know he was a tremendously influential man there's no no denying that particularly within within the cult circles um but you know there is this connection that that's a lot of people are making between albert pike and levy at this point there's this kind of i haven't parsed pike's material enough um to, I've read, you know, quite a bit of morals and dogma, but I've not really sifted through it enough to be able to, to say yes or no, but there's, there's definitely a current of, of, of Mason saying that a lot of it was a little bit more than just influenced by Eliphas uh, Levy. And that's interesting to me too, because, you know, stateside Pike served in the civil war and he was kind of going through the same thing, you know, I mean, he was on the side that lost, yeah. So and and he, then he him taking on this reconstruction of of uh, of the Scottish right. It's kind of an um an interesting parallel. I I mean have have you have you looked into to pike's stuff uh, as well?
1: I haven't. You know, this is something that comes up uh, in podcasts I've done in the past. You know, the idea of Freemasonry in uh, the general kind of conception is is quite an American idea, and really Albert Pike and it uh, doesn't really play much of a role uh, in uh, Scotland for example uh, or, or really in Europe it's very much a, an american thing uh, albert pike and uh, you know i understand the importance of it uh, for American Freemasons, but it isn't something that I've, uh, I've spent much time with other than as a historical figure. Uh, not his ideas as such or his commentary and the degrees, but uh, I couldn't really speak to, to Albert Pike. However, I'm aware that there is this connection between Eliphas Levy and, and Albert Pike, the, this kind of uh, referencing, uh, and, you know, it would be wonderful to try and find some kind of reference in Albert Pike to the, perhaps, uh, you know, the astral light or something. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. a, I, I'm not the person to speak to that, unfortunately. Yeah, that's interesting, man. Right. He re- he reconstructs the Scottish
0: right. And nobody in Scotland talks about it. <laughs> That's
1: very no, interesting. No, no. <laughs> I, I,
0: it's funny because I, I remember also reading in A Golden Dawn History that Albert Pike had written to, uh, to Mathers and Westcott over in England when they were starting the golden or right before they were going to start the golden on and kind of talk to them about, um, I guess, endorsing some of the work he's done. Or, and they were like, thank you. No, <laughs> we're, not inter- we're not interested. Um, fascinating stuff uh, to me actually, because um, I am actually not a Scottish right Mason. I've, ne- I've never done the Scottish right. To be honest with you, I have no plans to do it just because again, that for me, right. That's a very, I don't know, like, the guy kind of rewrote all these rituals and it's all very um, it's very specious. Am I, when you can point to one person and say, I'm getting that person's philosophy going through this, it's kind of like not really for me, but here's the thing. I have no personal gnosis of it. So I'm not, I'm, I'm just expressing my doubts. I'm not criticizing the system that because there's, I'm, I'm sure that uh, that there's a lot there, but uh, and I, you know, then obviously Willermo is coming out of the, the Cohen. Tradition, doing you know the rectified Scottish right and all that stuff, and uh, I don't know. Do they? Do, is Willermoz a figure over by you, or do they kind of
1: N- not not so much? I mean, Scotland wouldn't be the 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 place for that kind of tradition as such. Certainly in the continent, in Germany and in France, you know, yeah. there's, uh the rectified right that went on to be the CBCS, uh, you know, there's still that uh, connection there. However, the the connection with the uh, Ella Cohen, Willemau's, and then into this uh, Rectified Scottish right is kind of overplayed. Really, the uh, Pasquale heritage that Pasquale takes with them goes into the last two secret degrees of the Scottish Rectified Right CBCS. And most modern orders remove those two degrees, the profess and the grand profess. These are basically long rituals that were a summary of uh, Pasquale's thinking. And that was like two secret high degrees within this, uh, the, the CBCS of Willemoz. But for a long time, those degrees uh, have, haven't been worked. So in a sense, the whole uh, connection has been lost. Uh, it's not been there for some time, and it was really uh, Willemoz sticking them in at the end. As far as I'm concerned, two long rituals, uh, two long lectures at the end uh, of the system that kind of summarise Pasquale. But uh, Willemoz was never properly made a ruqua which was the highest grade of the El twice mm-hmm. Twice he tried, and they, it was delivered to him. He was initiated by a deputy sovereign of the El who Pasquale said was illegitimate. Uh, and so he was never actually recognised. However, he was somebody who was in personal contact with Pasquale, and if there was ever to be a lineage that did survive, it would be through Willemoz.
0: Wow that i didn't know very interesting um so i have a couple of uh hand questions that i usually ask every guest um i think the one that i'd like to ask you is is uh for anybody that may have listened to this particular conversation and uh wanted to maybe get their foot or their toe (laughs) into some of the things that we're speaking about today uh could you recommend um any number of of books or places for the, other resources, places for them to start to to uh, learn about Elu Cohen or Levy or or what have you, Masonry.
1: Well, what I would do, and this again is my personal uh, belief, if you're interested in esotericism, if you're interested in the occult, I think you owe it to the members uh, of that lineage, that tradition, to understand their philosophies on their own terms. When you look at people uh, like, say, uh, Cagliostro, who was an esoteric Freemason, he died at the hands of the Spanish Inquisition. You have uh, the Cathars who spoke about that there's a whole host of people in history who have literally been uh, executed and burned in order for you to get the knowledge that they had. So... For me, it's important to understand them accurately. Now, I understand there's a place for engaging with a uh, masonry, the occult tradition, esotericism on a spiritual level. And in a spiritual level, you know, your beliefs are your beliefs. It's what you draw inspiration from, what you draw hope from. Uh, and the historical reality isn't really uh, too important. However, I think we still have a duty to these people in history who literally gave their life for that knowledge to be passed down to try and understand it as best we can and not through some artificial sun uh, of modern, you know, spiritual interpretation. So for me, it would be always go back to the sources, try and find the best uh, translations of the original sources. However, secondary uh, literature is very important as well. And I think for anybody, I would ask them to start with a... a previous professor of mine, Nicholas Goodrich clark uh, An Introduction to Western Esotericism. That's a very uh, concise, academic and easy read if you want to understand the actual tradition and its historical context. From there, I uh, would be looking at the likes of authors like Winter Hanengraaff, Marco Pazzi, uh, people who are writing uh, in an accessible way, but with uh, legitimate credentials, people that aren't writing so much to promote their own order. When it comes to the Ella Cohen, it always surprises me that there is an interest in the Ella because it's a highly, <laughs> a highly obscure and specific thing, you know, to have a kind of interest in Elikou and perhaps necessitates some kind of interest in Freemasonry, some kind of interest in the grimoire tradition, some kind of interest in 18th century France. So there's actually quite a lot of background being required for that. However, I think anybody who's interested in ceremonial magic will find a lot of work, uh, a lot of uh, help in Dr. Stephen Skinner's work, for example, is going to give you that kind of base and the resources to kind of enter it. I believe David Rankin has now brought out a a, a grimoire encyclopedia, which is going to be invaluable. And again, I think whilst I often say that this is a wrong thing to do, I think if you're coming in for the first time, trying a bit about the golden dawn to begin with, to get your idea, you know, what a, a, a ceremonial magical order would have been like, Because, of course, Ella Cohen was probably the first fully functional magical order with like a progressive system. Uh, And I think working around about these kind of more common ideas and common traditions will set you up for stepping that toe into the Elo because it isn't something that you just rush into. There's a lot of in-house language. There's a lot of Masonic kind of history involved. There's a lot of uh, uh, background reading before you can even get a basic understanding. I think I would uh, definitely start with those types of sources before moving into the Elo Great. Yeah.
0: So Stuart Cleland, thank you so much um for for coming on and having this conversation with me um i think there are a couple of things that you mentioned that are going to be of um inestimable value for for people uh you know that do listen to this podcast to hear and and to consider and i i really appreciate your your insight and your groundedness um and having an open mind so Thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate your work, and uh, I'm a big fan, and I hope to speak to you again in the future.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation today.